0: So you can just head right back up the center, and Deb will meet you right at the back. Alright, Shayla, are we recording? We're good? Everything's ready? Okay, you can open your Bible to Romans this morning. We're going to jump all over the place, but we're going to start in Romans, and we're going to end in Romans. So if you, um, if you're a quick Bible flipper, or on your phone you have speedy fingers, and you can follow along, by all means, feel free to do that. Um, but if not, you can just kind of hang out in Romans, and feel free to write down the other passages that we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So if you were here uh, for the first time this morning, what we have been doing the last number of weeks, so this is week five of seven, we're going through seven core theological distinctives of the AGC. So the AGC is the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. That is the grouping of churches that we uh, belong to and are part of. And we believe these are seven very core things that we need to understand from Scripture that are essential for us to believe who Jesus is. Um, This series kind of came out from as we were studying through 1 John. There's a lot of things in there where John is pleading with the church there to not depart from the gospel. They were starting to change it and twist it and turn it. And if so, a group of people left the church and, and those who were remaining John is encouraging them, don't turn from the gospel. And that's what I would implore of us. And so there's a lot of stuff that we can agree to disagree on. There's a lot of interpretations on different theological issues that that we don't have to necessarily see eye to eye on. There's good interpretations on different sides of the argument, and, and those are okay. We can still be united together. We can still worship together. We can still celebrate together. We can still come together and pray together, all of those things. But there are some things that if we twist or if we turn, it changes the message of the gospel. It changes who God has revealed himself to us as. And we have to be careful about those things. And so that's where this series kind of was birthed out of. And so we've gone through several key distinctives. The first one right where we started was scripture. That the book that you hold, or if you, you're you know, scrolling on your, on your phone, is the Bible that's in front of you. This is God's word to us. He has declared these things through various people who wrote them down for us, but these are his words to us, and this is how we choose to live our life, based on what he has said, not what we want to believe, but what he has revealed to us. And we've looked at several other uh, things, such as kind of the overall view of God and how God has is a trinity, is three persons in one. And of course, we weren't kind of able to exhaustively explain that, and no one ever will, but we talked about why it's important that we believe that and why Scripture shows that to us. We talked about the origin of evil and angels and Satan. We talked about, last week, we talked about mankind. And I just want to spend a few minutes clarifying a few things from last week because this leads into this week. This week's topic is... Every pastor's favorite sermon is redemption, salvation, the gospel. This is so vitally important that we grasp who Jesus is and why Jesus came. But we started last week with mankind because we need to understand ourselves correctly if we're going to understand God correctly. And so what we looked at is that the predominant worldviews kind of all teach the same thing. At the very heart of it. That man is good. And that yes, men are capable, uh, men and women are capable of doing bad things, but that's, and there's explanations away, environment and different things about why that happens. But the predominant worldview is that at the very core, man is good. Well, we looked through scripture and what we found is something that God teaches us is very different. We looked at Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and it's wicked. We looked at Genesis and we looked at how when Adam and Eve sinned that that sin nature is now passed down to every single one of us We read in Psalms where David says that by the time that we're conceived We're already sinful The scripture teaches us that there's a huge problem. We're not we're not good We're desperately wicked in need of a savior and that's a hard thing uh, to say because we don't like we, we like to say people are good But the only thing that's good in us is that we're created in the image of God. And so we read through what the image of God means in in Genesis and how God has created us with the ability to love and to care for and with compassion and kindness and all these things. And, And no matter who it is, every single person who's ever lived on this earth, no matter how broken they may have been, was created in the image of God. And God loves them desperately. But we read through how That image has been marred due to sin, and and while we still are his image bearers in some way, the fullness of that has been taken away due to sin. What we're going to find out this morning is that through Jesus, through redemption and salvation, that one day that that image of God, that, that we are image bearers, that will be restored to the way that God originally intended it to be, and that's great news. But there's one thing that I do want to clarify in this is 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, all of us at some point are going to come face to face with God at the judgment and we are going to have to make an account for our lives there's other scripture passages that talk about this and there's only two options that's in front of us either we're found guilty and because of our guilt scripture teaches that we will be sent uh, to hell for eternity apart from god and we don't like to talk about that because it's just it's so heavy and so negative but Scripture teaches there's also another option, is that we can be found innocent and we can go to be with the Father in heaven for eternity. So there's two responses that we can have. one, We, we can be found guilty or we can be found innocent. And of course, last week, we kind of, there was good news, right? We left with hope. But the hard, difficult reality of it is that I stand condemned. I stand guilty. When I go to that judgment, when I stand before God, is there's nothing that I can say on my own accord where I can convince God that I deserve to be in heaven. James 2 verse 10 says this, "Whoever keeps the law excuse me, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Perfection. That's the standard if we want to earn our way into heaven if we want to say to god look i deserve to be in heaven there's only one way to do that to live a completely perfect life and if we're honest with ourselves we all know that not one of us can say that in fact i would probably argue that not one of us can say we did that yesterday in a 24-hour period of time As we stand guilty and we talked about how because Jesus was born not of man, not but conceived of the Holy Spirit, that that sin nature that exists in all of us was not present with Jesus. And so because he didn't have sin nature and because he was the only one who's ever lived that could, he lived a perfect life. And so because he is uniquely qualified, he can pay the penalty for our sins. But we can't. We stand guilty. A really simple kind of analogy is, imagine you are standing in the, in the courtroom, right? You're standing before the judge, and, and you're guilty. Whatever the crime is, it doesn't matter, but you're guilty. You know you're guilty. All the evidence is there. It's just plain as day. There's nothing you can do to argue about it. And so what you try to do is, in, in, instead of dealing with that issue, you say, well, actually, there's a lot of good that I do. And you go through all the reasons why you're a good citizen and and you help out in all these various ways and and you do good things to your neighbors and all these things and and you just kind of stack the cards so that your good pile or your good column is just rightful and the only thing over here is just that, that one thing. Does somehow you having this good pile over here make you innocent of the crime that you're standing guilty of? No, it doesn't. And the same is true of us, is no matter how much we try and put in our good column, the problem is, we're already guilty. By the time we are born, we stand guilty. What scripture teaches is, there is none good, not even one. And we talked last week about how there is hope, though, Romans says the wages of sin is death, we looked at the last half of that verse, which says, but... Well, what does it say? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Though we stand guilty, God has made a way for us to find innocence. Not in what we are capable of doing, but what he did for us. And we're going to look at this at length here this morning. But what we need to remember as we lead into this is Romans teaches us that Death is now part of the consequence of our sin, but not just physical death, spiritual death. And what we're going to look at this morning, salvation and redemption, it doesn't only deal with physical and it doesn't only deal with spiritual. It deals with both. And I'm going to say this over and over, but this message, and it's not what I'm saying to you, this is just going to be scripture read for us this morning. This is the best news ever for anyone who has ever lived this is the greatest news that we could ever have and I'll say that over and over and over as we go so uh, Shayla if you can put on the screen now this is it's a long a very long statement Uh, the others have been kinda more short and succinct but this one is a little bit longer so I'm I'm gonna read it and and it's gonna be on the screen so that you can follow along we're gonna kinda deal with three different parts of this statement uh, and of course, if you have questions or if, if we haven't uh, exhaustively covered everything correctly or to your satisfaction, by all means, just give me a call this week and I'd love to sit down and chat with you. But here's what our statement says. Redemption is accomplished solely by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was made to be sin and died in our place as an acceptable sacrifice to God. His atoning death is sufficient for all and effective for every person who repents and believes in him, resulting in a reconciled relationship with God. Salvation is available by grace through faith. The salvation is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation includes being declared righteous by God, that's justification, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, sanctification, and being fully restored to the image of God, glorification. This salvation, which includes our new birth and eternal inheritance, is kept by God's power. It is therefore impossible for the saved to lose their salvation. So we're going to look at kind of three different parts of this statement and and try and make sure that we've scripturally shown why we have made this to be our statement. The first thing we read in there is this is accomplished solely by the blood of Jesus. So like I said in Romans, we're going to look at chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 to 11 together, and it says this. This is Romans 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see it right there in verse 9. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. I just want to clarify what this word justified means. And there's a couple of, we're going to look at sanctification and glorification in our statement here in just a minute. But I think we need to understand this one right from the beginning. As we've been justified by his blood. Well, justified is kind of this legal term, which basically means that we stand innocent. We've been justified. We are innocent. So I learned this as a kid. This is maybe helpful uh, for your memory and, and for you to think of this word as right. When you think of the word justified, you just have to take it in bits and pieces, and you go, It's just as if I've never sinned. That's how God looks at us. We He has justified us through the blood of Jesus. So again, not because of me, not because of what I'm capable of or what I can do, but because Jesus died on the cross. His blood covers my sin. His blood is the only thing sufficient for my justification. In the Old Testament, we read all about the sacrificial system and how each one was to sacrifice an animal without blemish at all these varying times to deal with sin. Well, in Hebrews nine twenty-two, it says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain that Jesus' blood is now sufficient for the forgiveness of all sins. That the Old Testament, when people sacrificed for their sins, that, that blood of that bull or that goat or whatever it was, that didn't actually have the authority or the power to forgive sin. But it pointed to the one who would be able to forgive sin. So Jesus, when he died on the cross, his blood was sufficient for the forgiveness of all. And so the sacrificial system ended in that moment. The writer of Hebrews argues with them, uh, with these Hebrew Christians to understand that they don't go back to the old ways because they were all pointing to Jesus. And now Jesus has come. Jesus died on the cross for you and your sins have been forgiven. Everything points to Jesus. The statement goes on to say that Jesus was made to be sin and died in our place. And that might seem like kind of strange wording, but the reason we've chosen that is it comes right out of 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says this, for our sake, he, that's God, made him Jesus. So God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this verse, like you could, you could preach a whole sermon just on this verse so easily. There's so much packed in here. But I just want to read a quote to you from Scott Hafman, who kind of succinctly puts this very clearly. He says, this verse is one of the most important in all of Scripture for understanding the, mean of, the meaning of the atonement and justification. This means that God the Father made Christ to be regarded and treated as sin, even though Christ himself never sinned. Further, we see that God did this for our sake. God regarded and treated our sin, that's the sin of all who would believe in Christ, as if it belonged not to us, but to Christ himself. He continues on explaining and says, in becoming sin for our sake, Christ became our substitute. Christ took upon, sorry, Christ took our sin upon himself and as our substitute thereby bore the wrath of God which is the punishment that we deserve in our place. That is the best news we could ever hear. Right? We stand guilty. I cannot stand before God and say, I deserve to go to heaven because I'm good. When I stand before God, all I will recognize is just how much in me is wrong, how much I have done, how unworthy, how unholy I am, how undeserving I am. That's what I'm going to see but because christ died because he was the only one uniquely qualified to be our substitute because he never sinned because he died for me when god looks at me now he doesn't see greg and all of his sinfulness he sees the righteousness of christ covering me. and so if we have confessed jesus christ as our lord and our savior what scripture teaches us is that god looks at us he justifies us He's forgiven us, and we are viewed as righteous. Not because of anything that we've done, but for everything that he has done for us. Even in just the 2 Corinthians 5, 21 verse, it explains the rest of that first paragraph of our statement. This shows why Jesus' death is sufficient and effective for every person who repents and believes in him, because only his blood could forgive sin. I could not no matter how much I love my wife or my son, I could not pay for the penalty of their sin because I have my own sin. Jesus could pay the penalty for our sins because he didn't have sin. He didn't sin. He alone is qualified to do that. He has reconciled us to a relationship with God And ultimately, as we're going to discuss when we hit this glorification idea, is all things will be restored the way that God intended them to be, and we will be able to be in the presence of God, in the relationship with God the way that he intended. The next paragraph of our statement, this is of of huge importance. Um, Not that the rest of it isn't, but this is something that gets attacked over and over and over. This is something that throughout various traditions, various denominations, going all the way back in history, this has been a, a huge stumbling block to people. If you know your history well is about 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation, this was one of the central key things where the Protestant movement broke off from a Catholicism teaching because it was unscriptural, they recognized it, and while they're totally correct and we're going to deal with this. So often we find ourselves getting back to what is not scripturally correct. And Randy already read this uh, to us in Ephesians 2.8.9, but let me read the sentence first in our statement and then we'll say why or explain why we have read this in, self, in Ephesians. The statement says this, Salvation is available by grace through faith. The salvation is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and you'll see it almost as verbatim. This is scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So simply put, this is about Jesus. This is not about us. If you've been part of the church for any length of time, you heard me say this over and over and over, the gospel is not about us. The gospel is about Jesus. Yes, it is for us, but it's not about us. And all through history, this has been such a stumbling block because people have been refusing to admit that when we read Ephesians 2.8.9, what we see is that I am undeserving of salvation. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. It's it's not, Jesus did not go to the cross because he looked at me and he went, I'm obligated to die for that person because he's such a wonderful person. That's the exact opposite of what scripture teaches us. We, We just read it in Romans is while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. This is so central. This is so important for us to realize is that I do not deserve this, that God in his grace and in his love reached down and says, I want to offer salvation and I want to restore you to the right relationship I intended you to have with me. Not because of you, but because of me. That's what God's saying. I would argue that back in Genesis when we read about Adam and Eve in the first sin, I would argue that the arrogance of Adam and Eve and the arrogance of man all throughout that is the central issue. And I would argue that that becomes the same issue here for us. Is if we start to think more highly than we ought and we start to go, I deserve salvation, I deserve forgiveness because I'm basically a good person. We've ignored everything that scripture teaches us about our own hearts and about who God is. Jesus did not die on the cross because you were worthy. He died on the cross for you because you were unworthy. Unworthy. Because I am unworthy. That's central. And we cannot move away from that. And if we move towards thinking that somehow we deserve it or we have earned it, it's not God's grace. It's obligation where God had to do something for you because you were so good. The message of the gospel is not that. The message of the gospel is I was dead. We read this last week in Ephesians 2. I was dead. There was nothing I could do, but God reached down and in his grace and in his love for me, he has offered me a chance at salvation. The gospel is about him, not about us. The last section of our statement has a few various definitions. And so we've already talked about justification, which is being declared righteous before God. It's a positional thing. But there's also this Uh, this next uh, uh, definition that we need to stay. So the statement says that we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. So this is sanctification. So while we stand positionally uh, righteous before God because of what Christ has done, there's also this ongoing aspect of it that it's not just about a moment, but it's also about our whole life. We need to understand sanctification from this practical aspect. The moment that we realize our need of Jesus, we ought to become more Christ like as we grow and as we mature. And so many people view salvation only as this one time moment, and they view it kind of with this idea of like fire insurance. I'm never going to have to do any of this stuff, but just in case, I will. But the issue is not just that we need to be forgiven of sin, but that God wants to reconcile us or bring us into relationship with himself. So it's not just about, well, I prayed a prayer. I became a Christian 20 years ago, and so I'm good. It's about following Jesus every day. And yes, we're going to make mistakes. Yes, we're going to fall. Yes, we're going to screw up. Yes, we're going to recognize our own desperate wickedness from time to time. But all that should do is point us towards the grace and mercy of Jesus. It should not condemn us, it should embrace us with this reality that despite me, God loves me. There's no greater news than that. First Peter two twenty-four, Peter writes this He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I've said this before, but if it was just about a moment of salvation, is that when you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you would just be raptured straight to heaven. But that's not the way it is. Jesus has left us here now to be his ambassadors, to declare to the nations who he is. That's our role. As Christians, so in your workplace, in your family, in your friendship circles, you were called to become more Christ-like so that others see Christ in you and they can see the need that they have of that, of him. Jesus prays it this way in John 17, verses 17 to 19. This section is called the high priestly prayer, and it says this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We have died to sin. What we have recognized is that there's nothing the world has to offer us that can give us any sense of meaning, purpose, and identity. We find that in Jesus alone, and so we recognize that what the world is offering to us is not sufficient, but Jesus is. So we run towards that. And so if if you have said you're a Christian for the last 20 years and you haven't grown at all in your faith or in your love for Jesus or in your love for his word, then my argument would be perhaps you never understood the commitment you made the first time. This is not just about one moment. This is about God giving you purpose and meaning and life. And life abundantly. Now, so often we get that confused with life richly, with lots of possessions and stuff. The greatest news is not that one day that you will be rich and wealthy and healthy and all those things. The greatest news is that one day you will be with God in eternity. You will have no needs of any kind because he will provide everything that we could possibly need. In fact, in Revelation, when you, when you read about this, and we're going to talk about this in week seven, but when we read about uh, the new heaven and the new earth, it, it almost seems like there is no actual sun to light the earth, but that the light of God is sufficient to provide all the light that we need. We'll talk about that more in week seven, a very interesting thought. So that's sanctification, but also there's this idea of glorification, right? So we're created in the image of God. That image has been marred, but when Jesus comes again, when we go to be with God forever, we will be restored and glorified, and this is important, not for our sake, but for God's sake so that he would receive glory and honor. He will restore us to the image which we were supposed to be. We just read this uh, a a number of weeks ago as we studied through 1 John, but this is just the clearest verse on this. 1 John 3 verse 2 says this. Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is is when we go to be with God forever, that original image that we were created to be in with God is going to be restored to the way that he created it. We will be glorified. That sin nature, that while we're redeemed now, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, yes, you stand positionally righteous, but that sin nature is still a part of you. But when we die and when we go to the judgment, that sin nature will be gone. We will be with Jesus, perfectly restored the way it was at the beginning, with Adam and Eve walking in fellowship with God. Now, when you look at the statement uh, of faith on this, there's these two sentences at the end that we've kind of tagged along that don't clarify salvation as much, but clarify that salvation is a gift of God and that God is the one who orchestrates and holds this, not us. Because again, as I've said, this is about God, not about us. And so we believe uh, in the AGC, we believe that salvation is something that is offered by God, that is orchestrated by God, that is given to us. And yes, we have to respond to that. But when we make that commitment to follow after Jesus, that he holds us tightly and that we can never lose that. Let me read to you from scripture so you see what we're saying. Ephesians 1 13 and 14 says this In Him, that's again, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. We have been sealed, we are His. John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus says it this way, My sheep know my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the the best news ever. Said it lots is that when, we, when I acknowledge that I desperately need a Savior because of my wickedness, because of my heart, because of my sin, and when I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, salvation has begun, a work has begun, and God holds on to me, and he will never let go. That's the best promise that we can have because we can know that no matter what happens to us, no matter the pain, the hurt, the suffering, any of that that happens in life, that God does not let go. That encourages me with the hope that realizing that in those darkest days when I am uncertain and questioning God and asking why is He doing this and why is He allowing this, that He has not let go of me and made me walk this alone, but that He holds me tightly. There's no greater news than the news that God loved us so much that He sent Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved us so much that he was unwilling, even though we stand guilty, we stand condemned by our own actions, God made a way for us to be able to be reconciled with him. Not because we deserve it, but because of his grace and his love and his mercy for us. So I want you to flip ahead if you're in Romans still to chapter 8. Paul writes this beautifully kind of in response to all of this, this idea of salvation. And so in Romans 8:31 to the end of the chapter, he writes this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the response that we make to this salvation. And so again, I don't want to pretend that I know any of you, your own heart, I hardly know my own and so I want to remind you that as we've read as we've seen as we've shown through all these various scripture passages we are in desperate need of a Savior that Savior is Jesus Christ he died on the cross for your sins so that when God looks at you he can declare you as righteous so that he can work in and through you, so that you can become more Christ-like, so that we can mature, and so that we can grow, and we can be sanctified day by day, so that ultimately one day we'll be glorified to be with him, restored the way that he intended. God has done all of this for you. He has given you a way and a chance at redemption and in salvation, and so if you have not admitted to God your desperate need of him, I would encourage you to consider what scripture has taught us this morning. To recognize that our hope is not found in our own abilities or our money or our possessions or our powers. Our hope is found in the fact that God loves us despite of what we do and what we say. And he wants to be in relationship with you. And so I would urge you to consider that question for those of you who have made a commitment to follow christ and you've said yes jesus is my lord and my savior is i would encourage you read scripture and know that god has called you for purpose and meaning he's not done with you no matter where you work no matter who you interact with no matter how many or how few people you think you have influence on god wants to work in and through you for his glory so that others would see who jesus is You can be passionate about your work and your family, your career, all those things. That's okay. But be far more passionate about Jesus Christ. Someone once said, you can take nothing with you to eternity. But I also heard someone else say, you can take people. And so remember that all those that are in our charge, that are in our care, whether that's your children or your extended family or Maybe you're in a position of authority over people at work that you love dearly. The most important, the, most, the best news they're ever going to hear is the message of Jesus Christ. So may we find courage with how we can live for Jesus and show to the world that we are his ambassadors. That yes, we can have passions and hobbies and excitements and, and things that are of this earth, but none of them They all pale in comparison to our love of Jesus. Jesus alone is worthy. Let's pray.